0: We're in Acts chapter 21 this morning, verses 27 through 40. Back in chapter 21, a couple weeks ago, we learned how Paul was going to be heading off to Jerusalem, and as a result, he would be facing some persecution. He wasn't told exactly what was going to happen at that specific moment, but he learned later that he'd be put into chains. Today, we're going to basically see this start to come to fruition. I'm going to use some alliteration again today as we look at this, we're going to First off, see how Paul was accused, attacked, and arrested for the sake of the gospel. And then we're going to see his, what I'm going to refer to as his apology. And I'm using the word apology there in the sense of apologetics. And so those are your four A's for today, if you will. Paul is accused, attacked, arrested, and ultimately offers up an apology for the gospel. We're going to see how that kind of plays out as I shared with you a few weeks ago. As we get to this last section in the book of Acts... We're going to talk quite a bit about persecution because that's what Paul faces. We're going to see how that works out. We're going to see Paul's response. In fact, in a message coming up here, I'm excited about it because we see exactly how Paul responds, the techniques that Paul uses while he's being um, persecuted and he's responding to that persecution. So that'll be down the road a little bit yet, but it'll give us some good walking papers or some marching orders for how we might be able to respond in the culture and society around us as we see things rapidly change. But let's go ahead and take a look at um, verses 27 through 29 of chapter 21, where we see that Paul is falsely accused. So chapter 21, starting at verse 27, When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him. Crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. Besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So we see here that Paul is falsely accused. Paul was finishing up his purification rites, if you remember, when he had shown up in Jerusalem. Dustin taught on this last week. He's sharing all the great things that God had done, and yet there's some controversy then, because there's some Jews that are accusing him of certain things. And so, part of the thing that Paul does is he decides to take a few of the men who are under a vow. He himself had recently um, completed a vow but decided to go to the temple and he would pay for those men to go through the purification rites and the ending of their purification time and Paul would join them at the temple and part of it (coughs) excuse me, was to assuage the concerns of the Jews and the accusations they had made against them. They were false accusations and so James and Paul had agreed that by Paul doing this going to the temple and fulfilling some of the Old Testament rites and rituals at the temple that maybe that might convince the Jews that Paul was not who they had claimed he was. The first accusation that was made against Paul was that he was preaching against the Jews, the law and the temple. That's verse 28 there. In fact, they framed it as if this was Paul's mission in life. Notice that they said that he did this to all men everywhere. Everywhere Paul went, his purpose and his goal was to preach against the Jews, the law and the temple. That was his mission in life. Now if that charge sounds familiar, it's because it's very similar to the false accusations they leveled against Stephen. I'll let you go back and look at that, but Acts chapter 6, we saw they leveled the same type of charges against Stephen. that he was out there preaching against Moses and the law. We know that Stephen wasn't doing that. But that was their accusation. Acts chapter 21, verse 21, we see... They had been talking behind the scenes about Paul as well with the similar accusations. Notice James says that, 21 verse 21, that the Jews had been saying that Paul had been teaching all the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. And so Paul was out there according to these Jewish folks preaching against the law and Moses and telling Jews not to be Jews anymore. Now, we have a record of what Paul preached and taught, don't we, in the book of Acts. Do we see that anywhere? No, absolutely not, because it wasn't true. Stephen and Paul were accused primarily of preaching against their very own religious convictions and traditions. Think about that for a moment. They were accusing Paul and Stephen as well of preaching against the very things that they had grown up under many of the things that Paul was still doing. He said he was a Jew when he was around Jews. He fulfilled a vow. We saw him do that. We know that he wanted to go back to Jerusalem for Pentecost to celebrate that. But they accused Paul of going against those religious convictions and traditions. There's some additional things here in verse 28 if you want to look back at that with me. In verse 28, notice that they said that he's actually also preaching against our people. It wasn't just that Paul was preaching against the law, this place, the temple, but that he was actually preaching against the Jews. This, in essence, is an accusation of anti-Semitism. Now, think about that for a moment. Paul is preaching against his very own people, is what they're saying. He was a traitor to his people. Is that what we see in the book of Romans? Paul gets into chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul was willing to die for his own people. But yet here these Jews are making up these accusations that Paul is an anti-Semite. He hates his own heritage. He hates the temple. He hates Moses. It was constantly preaching to everyone everywhere against those things. So that was the first Accusation. The second accusation, and in some respects this is maybe more egregious to Jews, was that Paul had defiled the temple. Actually defiled the temple. You can go ahead and throw that picture up if you want, Dustin. <clears throat> but you notice, look at what they said. And besides, verse 28, he had even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. I don't know if we can see that I'll. Turn the light off here. I've got a picture of the temple here to give you an idea of what this looks like. You can see that all okay? This is the temple complex. It's a reconstruction, obviously. Um, and what you'll basically see is that there are different areas. Okay, The outside area, all the wide open spaces around it, that was called the temple, I'm sorry, the courts of the Gentiles. Just inside there in the front Was what was called the court of women. That's where women were permitted to go. They couldn't go any further. Okay, way up at the top where you see that's the holy of holies, and in front of that you have the temple of the priests, where the priests could be. And between the temple and the, I'm sorry, between the court in the front, which is the open square square area, right through those bottom doors there, the court of women. Right above that you see that little doorway that leads into the court that goes to the Holy of Holies. That little area between there was the court of men. That's where Israelite men men could go. Okay. Now I want you to notice something else. Not only do you see there's these tall walls outside the court of women and then the court of men and then up in the Holy of Holies, but you notice these little... They're they're white barricades, these stones that make a path around like another small. Those are about four feet high. What's interesting about that, you can go ahead and take that down, Dustin. What's interesting about that is along those smaller barricades, those... um, they're almost like those parking things you see on the highway, or not parking things, when you go on the highway and they make the barricades, those cement barricades to make new lanes. It's kind of like those. They're a little higher. But what was interesting about those is every so many feet <clears throat> along those things, there were actually um, warnings written. And we found two stones from, a, from the temple with the inscriptions on them. They're actually displayed in a museum in Istanbul and another one in Jerusalem. And this is what they read. It was written in Latin. No foreigner may enter within the barricade, within those small barricades, which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for what follows, death. That's what was written on those barricades. Who are the foreigners? Gentiles. Now, according to Jewish tradition, it wasn't the Old Testament law, but according to Jewish tradition, Gentiles were only permitted in that outside court of the Gentiles. They could not go beyond those shorter barricades. And if they did, they were subject to execution. And what's interesting about this is Josephus actually recorded, he's the first century Roman Jewish historian, that was not a curse. It was basically a warning that anybody who went beyond there as a Gentile was subject to death. And what's really interesting about that is the Romans allowed the Jews to execute even Romans who violated that. That was strange because Romans were protected. And we're going to see that in one of what happens to Paul here in the future when the Roman commander prepares to flog him and discovers he's a Roman. The fact that the Romans were willing to allow Jews to execute Romans for crossing this barricade and going into the temple when they were Gentiles means it was pretty serious. And so what we actually see happening here is that these Jews are claiming that Paul took Gentiles from that Gentile court, probably through the court of women, and up into the court of Israel between where the Holy Holy is and the temple of women, or the, the court of women. And that he somehow had brought those Gentiles into that section and therefore had defiled the temple. And therefore he was guilty, subject to death, as well as the men that he had supposedly brought in. And now what we find here is they didn't actually see Paul do this. The Bible actually says that they supposed it because they had previously seen a man by the name of Trophimus, an Ephesian, hanging out with Paul elsewhere. So it was an assumption on their their part. They didn't have any evidence that he had done it. It was just enough that they saw him hanging out with a Gentile. And they just assumed he must have brought him into the temple. Do we see some of these same tactics used today? They don't just disagree with what we teach or what we preach. They falsely malign and accuse us of preaching against people. They call us bigots, homophobes, hate mongers, white supremacists, racists, anti-women, anti-science. Am I exaggerating? Is this not what we see? I came across, the. was actually watching CNN. Don't. Throw stones or sticks. <laughs> I oftentimes watch alternative sources of information <laughs> um, just to see what they're saying, partly because I find it funny, partly because I find it disturbing, and partly because I think it's a good idea to understand what they're saying and doing. But it was interesting. They were talking about some of these um, protests at some of the school, parent, school board meetings the teaching of CRT and some of the LGBTQ stuff. Um, And I actually watched a commentator blame evangelical Christians for the destruction of education in America. He specifically blamed the destruction of public education in America on Christians. found that fascinating. Quite the opposite. Watched another episode on another channel, MSNBC, and watched them blame Christians for climate change. Because you know us conservatives, obviously all Christians are conservatives, right? That's, that's what they claim. And because we like our fossil fuels and our cars, because we're science deniers, because we deny that the earth is getting hotter or whatever they want to claim we believe, yeah, actually claimed that Christians were behind climate change and that we were ultimately going to destroy the earth. Nor the largest atheist country in the world. That puts out ten times the amount of pollution that the Western world does, but it's Christians. Saw another article that blamed Christians for the continuing pandemic, COVID. Primarily because there are I would probably agree with this. There are probably less Christians vaccinated than the unsaved, partly because of convictions and other things. doesn't make it right or wrong. It's simply making a point. And so for that reason, this particular author in the article said that Christians were to blame for us still being in this pandemic two plus years in. That it's all because of us. And then he listed a number of things that should happen to Christians Like not being able to buy food, go to places, should be penalized, we should lose our jobs, etc. So Christians are to blame for the mess in public education, for climate change, for the spread of COVID, any number of things. None of that should actually shock us. Because Jesus warned us that following him would not be an easy road, that they hated him and therefore they would hate us. And if we look at Jesus' life, they hated him. Because of what he taught, because of what he said. Much of what they claimed against him was untrue, however. Matthew chapter 10 verse 22, Jesus said, "You will be hated by all because of my name, but it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. That's a warning we should take seriously makes me wonder, what should our response be? I want you to turn to Luke chapter 6. And we're going to see this response in Paul over the next few weeks. But Luke chapter 6. Jesus actually told us how we should respond when the world does this. Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way that their fathers used to treat the prophets. Notice what he says there. Be glad in that day. What should our response be today? Be glad. It's hard to be glad, isn't it? But that's what Jesus said. Be glad in that day. Because your reward is great in heaven for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. What we see happening in the world today towards Christians is no different than what they did to the prophets. Verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed, for you should be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their uh, fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear... Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also, and whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whatever takes or and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. You can continue that passage on your own, but Jesus tells us how to respond. It's a large pill to swallow, isn't it? He says, have joy because of the reward that you'll have in heaven. So Paul was falsely accused. We're going to see him live out some of these principles we just read from Jesus. It's not unusual. We saw continually in the early church as we looked at the book of Acts, that false accusations were made on a regular basis. It's nothing new. It's nothing that's going to change. It's going to continue. We're starting to see it here, maybe for the first time in our history. We're starting to see that kind of stuff here. So what happens after this? Well, Paul is not only accused, but they step it up a notch. We see that Paul is also violently attacked. Look at verses 30 through 31. He says, Then all the city was provoked. And the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So they didn't stop at their accusations. Back in verse 27, we saw that they stirred up the crowds. It's likely probably outside the temple. They started recruiting others to join them. Remember what they said earlier. Men of Israel, come to our aid. Help us. There's one man. <laughs> what are they talking about there? Basically, they're trying to start a riot. They're creating a mob. And we're going to see what that mob does later on. We see a little bit here. So it leads to this angry mob rushing into the temple. They take hold of Paul. They drag him out. Ultimately proceed to beat him. In fact, verse 32 They had to send in the soldiers to rescue him. Later in the passage, you learn that that same mob became so violent that Paul had to be carried to safety. The soldiers literally had to lift him up and carry him out. That's verse 35. And so, this is an angry mob that is intent on not just shutting Paul up, they want him dead. Verse 31 actually says they were seeking to kill him. Remember the barricade? Remember the warning? They felt they had every right to now take Paul's life because he had defiled the temple. But it went beyond that. We know that wasn't the only reason. They didn't like what he was preaching and teaching. So they were intent on killing him. In fact, when it fails here, there are two more attempts, two more plots made to assassinate Paul. These people were intent on taking his life. And so we see that when he is taken to Caesarea, the Roman centurion, we'll cover this in a couple of weeks, had to rescue Paul. In fact, he puts 200 soldiers, I'm sorry, almost 500 soldiers on Paul to take him to Caesarea to protect him against 40 men that plot to kill him. In fact, all the leaders were involved with it. It wasn't just the mob. But that wasn't enough because at the same time that they were trying to kill Paul, their backup plan was was demanding that the Romans would execute him. In fact, there are five different times that Luke mentions the idea of the Romans being responsible for maybe trying to execute Paul. Not necessarily that they did, because obviously you know that's not true, but that was the hope. That's what the Jews wanted. So if they couldn't kill him, then certainly they wanted the Romans to. And that was the plan all along. And so there's another five references to... Um, the Romans executing Paul here, meaning little references to he's not guilty, deserving of death, would be a reference. But the idea there, the thing I'm trying to communicate, is that they had sort of two plans. One was they're going to try to kill him them themselves, and if that didn't work, then certainly Rome would do the job for them. So they were intent <coughs> on having Paul put to death. You know, we've been fortunate here in the United States. I think persecution is becoming more and more real. I think we've been spared from much of the violence that we see in the rest of the world. Dustin, you can put that other image up if you want. I just want you to see something here. We're not going to spend much time on it. But I regularly look through sources like Open Doors and others that discuss persecution against Christians in the world. And the one thing that's been consistent from decade to decade is that persecution against Christians throughout the world continues to increase. There are now over 140 countries in this world that actively persecute Christians. And it continues to grow, and it's growing at an alarming rate. It appears that the amount of persecution against Christians is accelerating, meaning it hasn't stayed the same. And so what we see here is something from Open Doors... Basically, see, I think it's the top 50, if I remember, that's 50, I think it's 50 countries. But if you look, so much of the persecution, almost all of it, is where? Outside the United States, okay? Specifically, parts of northern Africa, parts of Asia, and those are also, however, parts of the world where Christianity is growing the fastest. Now, some would argue that persecution causes that. I don't necessarily follow that logic, Because persecution can also shut down the gospel. We've seen that in Iraq, for instance. And so, I don't think it's a result of the persecution. I think it's a result of God doing what God does in spite of the persecution within those folks. Because again, persecution can embolden the church, but it can also shut the church up to some degree. And we've seen that in different places. But this is just a visual. I think what we see here is coming here I don't think there's any question we've been fortunate up to this point I'm struck by a couple of things one is Paul in the face of this Acts chapter 20 verse 22 you remember what he said Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. Behold, in spirit I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish the course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul, in the face of persecution, said, I don't consider my life worth anything compared to finishing the race, you know, finishing the ministry, which is to preach the gospel of the grace of God. We saw something similar in Acts chapter 21, verse 13. When Paul learned he was going to be put into bonds, when Agabus came and took Paul's belt and bound his own hands, he said, This is going to happen to you, Paul. And his traveling companions begged him not to go. Yet Paul says, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say there? I'm willing to die for the name of Jesus Christ. As I was reflecting on these words of Paul, something Jesus said struck me as well. I want you to turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Look at verse 1. Listen to what Jesus said. Why did Jesus warn his disciples about the persecution that would come? Why is it that as we go through the book of Acts, we have passages like this one that warn us about the persecution that believers face? Jesus told us exactly why. Chapter 16 of John, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from what? Stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. But these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Before Jesus left, he says, I have to warn you about this because I don't want you to stumble when it happens. I don't want you to be caught off guard. The reason we have a passage much like this today, the reason why we see Paul struggle, why we see him persecuted here, why we're warned of it as believers, is because Jesus wanted us to be prepared and to not stumble when it happens. Not if it happens, but when. I had breakfast with Pastor Jim Custer a couple of weeks back. He had done Jerry's funeral, and afterwards, I kind of chatted with him briefly. And he said, "Let's do breakfast." I've never had a meeting one-on-one with Pastor Jim before. I've known him for years, never had a sit-down one-on-one with him. And we met for about two hours. And he mentioned, he said, "You know, Mike, I was watching the news last night for about three hours." He said, if even one-tenth of what I saw is true, and I'm going to paraphrase here, we're in a world of hurt, and the church needs to be prepared for what's coming. And so we talked about that. We talked about the need to prepare the church for what's coming. I'm not going to say Pastor Jim was a prophet, but those sound like the words of a prophet. If even one tenth of what we see, the world, I'm sorry, the church needs to be prepared. Jesus warned us, told us these things, so that we might not stumble. So Paul's accused, he's attacked, goes even further because now he's arrested look at verses 31 through 36 of chapter 21 while they were seeking to kill him a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion and once he took along or at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them and when they saw the commander and the soldiers they stopped beating Paul then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and began asking who he was and what he had done but among the crowd were some shouting one thing and some another, and could not find out the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be bound or brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of people kept following them, shouting, Away with him! That's a phrase that was used referring to execution. Take him away and execute him. So now we find Paul arrested here. Basically what happens is word of this mob reaches the ears of the commander. There happened to have been, um, there was a right there in Jerusalem, there's a large uh, facility. It's a military facility. It was high up. And from the top of that, you could actually look down into the temple. It was a way for them to see the city and keep track. It was there for the protection of the city. It was a military compound. The Greek word that's used for commander here refers to somebody who commanded at least a thousand soldiers. So he probably ran that complex. He takes two centurions as he hears. They probably saw this mob and saw the city in confusion. And so as he he sees that, he basically grabs two centurions, which means these were men over, basically commanders over a hundred men. So likely they took about 200 men. And ran down the stairs. There was a long stairway. They went right down into the temple. Ran those guys all the way down those stairs into the temple, and they come upon Paul, being beaten to death by these Jews. As soon as they arrive, the mob does what you'd expect it to do. When all these soldiers with their military weaponry show up, they immediately stopped beating Paul. But instead of rescuing him, what happens? Paul gets arrested. He's immediately bound by two chains, likely meaning that he was bound between two soldiers. Probably bound his arms, tied him to a soldier on one side, or chained him to a soldier on the other side, and then chained him to somebody else. It appears that the commander does a little bit of fact-finding by asking a couple of questions, but nobody could get their story straight. There's all this confusion. They're saying Paul was guilty of this, and others are saying he's guilty of this, and there was some confusion. None of it makes any sense. So then he orders that Paul would be taken to the barracks, Now, at first you might think it's for Paul's protection, but later on in the passage we find out that the plan was that he was going to take Paul to the barracks and torture him to get a confession out of him. That's verse 24. Had Paul not been a Roman citizen, that would have happened. So this is not a rescue mission. It's funny because later on, when this commander writes his letter to Governor Felix, he kind of changes the facts up a little bit and makes it a rescue mission. It's not what it was here. The commander had one thing in mind, and it was to shut down this angry mob, prevent a riot in the city, and he just automatically assumes Paul is guilty and puts him in chains, arrests him, plans to take him into the barracks, torture him to get a forced confession out of him, and then we'll all be done. From an earthly perspective, this all looks profoundly unjust, does it not? I think from an earthly perspective, that's probably true. Paul is falsely accused, violently attacked by an angry mob, and yet he's the one that gets arrested. I think about how many doctors we know, and this is not a Christian thing specifically, but I think about how many doctors that we've heard about through this pandemic that have just tried to do the right thing by treating their patients I learned about another one in Pennsylvania that just had his license yanked because he prescribed some things he wasn't supposed to prescribe. We have doctors all over the nation are their 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 licenses threatened because they've tried to be doctors and do what was best for their patients. They're the ones that are paying the price losing their licenses and their livelihood when they're doing the right thing. Here Paul is preaching the gospel and the mob is the problem, but yet Paul's the one who gets arrested for doing the right thing. There's another way to look at this, however, because obviously from an earthly perspective it does look highly unjust. But there's another perspective that we need to view this from. I want you to look at verse 11 of chapter 23. We'll cover this later, but I want to just read it now. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Hmm. What looks highly unjust, Paul's arrest, the Lord basically says, uh uh-uh. This is just one step on me getting you to Rome the Lord's plan was to use Paul's arrest as a means of testifying about him not just at Jerusalem not just at Rome but places in between now you might ask couldn't Paul have gotten to Rome some other way I'm sure he could have but that wasn't God's plan God's plan was that Paul would be arrested be mistreated and he would use that ultimately to accomplish his purpose. And we're going to see that played out in the next few weeks. When Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, Jesus laid out his plan and purpose for Paul, and it included using Paul as his instrument to witness of himself, not just to Jews, not just to Gentiles, but it says of kings. And that's critical. That's critical. Because it's a reference to government officials. Governors, kings, political officials. And that's exactly what we see play out in the rest of the book of Acts. I want to summarize some things. As a result of Paul's arrest, Paul is given at least six high-profile public opportunities to preach the gospel. In two very important cities. Jerusalem and Caesarea, the Roman capital, from a military perspective. So as a result of this arrest, Paul's going to be given these six extremely high-profile opportunities to preach the gospel. Opportunities he might not have been given, had he simply stopped in Jerusalem and then moved on to Rome. He's given the opportunity to preach to the mob. He preaches to the entire Jewish council, which is their supreme court. He preaches before two Roman governors, Felix and Festus. He preaches before King Agrippa, who was over all of Judea and Samaria. And finally, he preaches to the Jewish leaders in Rome. All of which were a result of being arrested in Jerusalem. When he arrives at Rome, he spends two years under house arrest in his own rented quarters, where the Bible says that he was able to preach Jesus with all openness, completely unhindered. In other words, when he gets to Rome and he's under house arrest, he's able to do what was difficult in other places, because in other places he was always hindered. The Jews were constantly after him, and yet God says, I'm going to give you two years of unhindered witness in the capital of the world, where you've got freedom to preach the gospel, all because he was arrested. In fact, it was during that time that Paul actually wrote his Roman arrest. He wrote to Philippians and declared that his imprisonment in Rome resulted in Christ becoming known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The Praetorian Guard was the elite unit of imperial Roman fighters that escorted all of the highest-ranking officials in Rome. And Paul says, My arrest provided me opportunity to preach the gospel to the entire praetorian guard who meets and escorts and protects the top of the top of the top political leaders in fact based on philippians 422 paul says that even some in emperor caesar's own household became christians as a result how's that for perspective as we look at Paul, we see this, these accusations and this attack and this arrest as being highly unjust. It makes no sense. Paul didn't deserve that. But when we look at it from God's perspective, it's very different, is it not? God used all of that to accomplish his purpose and his plan, not just for Paul, but for the spread of the gospel. Paul may not have gotten opportunities before Felix, Festus, the Praetorian guard, Caesar's own family. In fact, at one point when when he gets sent to um, Felix, he actually stays in the king's own personal residence. That's where they put him up. Imagine if Paul would have just shown up and said, knocked on the door and said, do you mind if I stay here while I'm preaching the gospel? perspective from our perspective it looks unjust it doesn't look that way from God's perspective so while his arrest was certainly unjust it was part of God's plan to spread the gospel all the way up to the highest levels of government the last thing we see in this passage is how Paul actually responds I refer to it this way Paul responds by offering an apology For the sake of the gospel. Look at verses 31 through 40, or 37 through 40. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus and um, Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hands, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. And then we actually get to this next week. We'll see what Paul says. Now I'm using the word apology here, again, not in the sense of, oh, I'm sorry. We don't don't have to apologize for the gospel. Never should. Paul didn't. I'm using the word here, apology, as in the sense of apologetic. It's so actually the word that Paul uses in verse 1 when he says, verse cha- or chapter 22, verse 1, when he says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense. He says, hear my apology. It's a defense of the gospel. That's what apologetics is, is it not? It's our way of defending the gospel. And so what Paul does now here, Paul's response to being accused, attacked, and arrested is to now offer up a defense of the gospel. That's how he responds. He sees it as an opportunity to further the work and the mission that God had called him to. I'm going to point out three things from this particular section here. One of them is how Paul addressed the commander. Notice he does it with respect. If we're to take a more literal translation of verse 37 basically says, am I permitted to say something to you? Paul recognizes the authority of the commander. He recognizes the situation. But rather than make a demand, Paul speaks to him with respect. In essence, he says, am I permitted to speak to you about something? He does it in Greek. The commander's a little bit surprised at that. He obviously knew Paul was a Jew, and even though the or Jews spoke Greek it wasn't always great Greek and so most would interpret this as being he was rather impressed by Paul's eloquence in Greek he recognized there's he's an educated man in, in Greek and so he responds to Paul by saying huh you speak Greek he wouldn't have been shocked that he knew Greek but probably how he spoke Greek but the first thing we see there is Paul's respect that he offered remember Jesus said love your enemies told us how to treat our enemies sometimes I think our response when persecuted or treated unjustly is to lash out and we have a tendency to forget who we represent and how Jesus responded to his accusers and we do the opposite many times here Paul speaks to the commander with respect Second, the commander assumes Paul might have been a famous Egyptian revolutionary. This is kind of interesting, too. A few years before this, approximately A.D. 54, there was a Greek-speaking Egyptian revolutionary who led 4,000 warriors, if you will, outside the city and prepared to come back in and attack the city of Jerusalem. They were going to completely tear down the physical barriers, the walls. They were going to overthrow the Romans, and then they were going to install this Egyptian leader as the new leader for the area. These men that he had let out in the wilderness were... They formed a group of what was called the assassins. And the reason they called them that is they would walk around within the city, around the temple and stuff, and they would assassinate Jewish leaders who they thought were too cozy with Rome. They would carry daggers under their cloak. And they basically would come up to these guys, stab them, hide the dagger, and then just casually walk away. They were known as the assassins. And so this Egyptian had led these group of people out. Well, ultimately, as they were planning their attack against Jerusalem, the Romans heard about it. They went out and they killed 400 of these. They captured another 200, learned all about their plans. But this Egyptian disappeared. They don't know where he went. He somehow escaped. Go back to our passage here. This commander said, Oh, this is that Egyptian dude. This is the rebel that planned the attack. And he looks at Paul and he basically says, huh, so you're not that guy? And part of it was because of the way Paul responded to him. He basically said, look, I'm, I'm not from there. I'm from Sicily. I'm a, I'm a Jew. I'm not an Egyptian. One of the reasons he might have thought he was the Egyptian because of Paul's eloquence, the, the, the Egyptians were very eloquent in their Greek. And so that's likely why he kind of put all this together. He's like, well, here you got this guy causing trouble in Jerusalem. The Jews hate him. Hmm, you know, there's a big mob out here, and he speaks great Greek. He's probably that Egyptian dude, but as Paul begins to speak to him and treats him with respect, he realizes he's probably not this Egyptian rebel. So Paul, I think, assuages some of that as he speaks to him. But you notice the last thing that Paul does is he actually now I'm going to use the word begs, beseeches the commander for an opportunity to speak to the mob. Look at verses 39 and 40 again. Paul says, I'm, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. Notice he says, I beg you, I beseech you. Allow me to speak to the people. How many of us in the same situation, we are be begging for an opportunity to speak to this angry mob that's out to kill us. But that's what Paul does. He asks the commander nicely. The commander, obviously, we're told here, gives him the opportunity to do it. And we'll cover this next week. We'll see exactly what Paul does. We'll analyze his speech to this angry mob. But as we look at all this, as we put all of this together, as we look at Paul being accused, attacked, arrested, and now his response of wanting to give a defense of the gospel before these people, there's a couple of things that we can, I think, camp on or think about for ourselves. The first is that despite of the angry and violent reaction of the Jews and the threats against Paul's life, Paul never lost sight of the mission that Jesus had called him to, which was to preach the gospel. never lost sight of that. In fact, here he is, thinking, how can I turn this into an opportunity now to present the gospel to my enemies? The ones who are trying to kill me. I would have been trying to figure out how to get out of there. Remember, the commanders having to... The the people... The soldiers are having to carry Paul away from this mob. They're so violent. And Paul's like, just put put, put me down. Can I I talk to him? And you're going to see that he presents the gospel. Paul never lost sight of the reason Christ left him here. How often do we forget that? Sometimes with all of the wonderful privileges and rights and freedoms we've been given here in America, sometimes I think the church forgets why we're here. I know I do. Oftentimes I think more about retirement and what's going to happen when I get a chance to stop working. More concerned about that than I am the people around me that desperately need to hear about Jesus Christ. Maybe that's why God is allowing to happen here in the United States what's happening. Maybe He recognizes that the church is forgotten. I think about the seven churches in the book of Revelation and how many of them had forgotten the mission that Christ had given to him. So the first thing that we can reflect on here is, despite this reaction, Paul never lost sight of the mission to which he had been called. And again, we'll see that unfold, especially next week. Second thing I think we can think about is that Paul's goal in standing up here, and we're going to see this next week, one of the striking things about Paul's apology here, his defense of the gospel is that it isn't so much about defending himself and avoiding the unjust treatment. It's not even about securing his release because there are times where Paul could have been released, but instead he appeals in a way that ensures that he's going to stay in custody and end up in Rome. Think about that for a minute. Paul ensured that he would stay in custody when there are opportunities for him to be released. In fact, at one point, we're even told, had he not appealed to Caesar, he'd be outside the gates. He'd be on his own. So it wasn't so much about Paul defending himself or avoiding unjust treatment or securing his release, but rather his ultimate goal was to find a way To defend his obedience to Jesus Christ and the gospel. That was more interesting to Paul than getting out of the situation. You know, but we've had a number of instances where we've had people who own, Christians who own businesses and have been attacked by the LGBT community or... By their own cities, city governments that are are creating laws against them so that they can't run their businesses the way that they want to as Christians and uphold Christian values, etc. And it's been interesting to see the response of some of these folks because, and I'm not making a judgment one way or the the other, but I've seen some of them who, who have made a point of making it about the gospel and that, hey, even if we lose our business, You're going to know why we do what we do. And have been willing to, to, in some respects, sacrifice their businesses for the purpose of those who are accusing them, knowing where they stand in relationship to Christ. Meaning that the emphasis has been not so much on defending themselves or getting out of that circumstance, but rather making sure that people know that this is all about my obedience to Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here in Paul. The last thing is for us, as we see ever ever increasing threat of persecution here, we know that our goal should not be self preservation, but defending our obedience to Jesus Christ. There's nothing sadder than watching churches and Christians cave to the pressure, thinking that they can appease their enemies. We've had churches that have abandoned certain doctrinal positions because, oh, it's just too hard to hold those positions. And we may lose this or we may lose that. Or to see Christian businesses cave to certain things. I was watching a a commercial the other day for eHarmony. Remember eHarmony? It was a Christian dating site for years. And then they got sued and challenged and, um, were threatened with all kinds of other stuff and so then they set up a gay version of e harmony to appease, well the commercial I saw the other day, there is nothing Christian about e- anymore. It is a purely secular dating thing and that's the way it was presented. Nothing sadder than seeing Christians stumble. Isn't that what Jesus said? I'm warning you about this now so that you don't stumble. And so we're being warned that we might not stumble. We have to remember that Jesus left us here for one purpose, one mission. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we face false accusations, as we face attacks, as we face sometimes arrest, if you've seen what's happened in Canada right now, if you've And watching that with their banning of conversion therapy, it even really prohibits parents from teaching their kids or trying to help their kids if they're struggling with improper sexual thoughts and ideas. There's a chance parents could be arrested for that. What's going to happen to the Christian church in Canada? It's coming. What should our response be? Much like the Apostle Paul. Let's not make it about defending ourselves not make it about just getting out of the persecution. Let's not make it about appeasing. Let's make it about defending our obedience to Jesus Christ. Amen?